I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about the justices' field trip to Harvard, courts joining the resistance, and we'll interview Supreme Court reporter Kevin Daly. So the Supreme Court is back to hearing oral arguments this week. The cases are mostly thorny civil procedure issues this week, dealing with... uh, a federal tolling statute, the bankruptcy code, state court summary affirmances, and the Department of the Interior taking land into trust for an Indian tribe. These all sound thrilling. Yes, yeah, so really, really exciting stuff. So if there's anything really, uh, you know, breaking news that comes out of the oral arguments, we will report back on that next week. So the big news this week is that the justices have delayed the upcoming oral argument in the Ohio voting case. We talked about this case in our last episode with Robert Alt. So one of the lawyers in the case had a medical emergency. So the justice agreed to delay the argument. They have not rescheduled the case yet, but it'll likely be heard early in, in the new year uh, because their, their schedule is full through December. So over the weekend, several members of the court headed up to Harvard for the law school's bicentennial celebration. Chief Justice John, John Roberts, Anthony Kennedy, Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, Neil Gorsuch, and retired Justice David Souter were all in attendance. I wonder if they all rode together. Do you think maybe they took, uh, well, they couldn't have taken Clarence Thomas's van or bus, his bus, his bus, not bus. an RV. Yeah, it's a bus uh, since he is a Yale graduate. <laughs> maybe maybe he let them borrow it, though. <laughs> that would be a, a fun road trip. So Chief Justice Roberts gave brief remarks saying that a minority of his colleagues send their regrets since Thomas Alito and Sotomayor attended Yale and Ginsburg went to Columbia. He talked about the many great jurists who graduated from Harvard Law School, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Brandeis, Felix Frankfurter, and also Learned Hand. He pointed out that Learned Hand was not on the Supreme Court, but he should have been. And Chief Justice Roberts talked about how the school instills in its students the importance of the free exchange of ideas and the need for intellectual humility. There was also a panel discussion with the six justices moderated by the new dean, John Manning. Uh, he asked some some pretty interesting questions, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about some of those. So his first question was, he asked them to talk about what their 1L year was like. And Justice Kagan said that in her very first class, she was the very first person to be called on, and she said the professor just raked her over the coals. But she said she was glad to get that experience out of the way so that law school was a little less terrifying going forward. Now, Neil Gorsuch said his 1L year was terrifying, and John Manning said, you know, have you gotten over this, you know, being terrified of law school? And and Gorsuch said, I'll let you know when that happens. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kennedy said that after two weeks of classes, he saw an apple stand near the campus with a sign that said, apples, plural, for 10 cents. So he went up and gave the seller 10 cents and tried to take two apples. And the the seller said, no, it's 10 cents per apple. And Kennedy, you know, quibbled with with that, and, and the seller said, are you one of those law? students. Uh, So I think this is a great example of uh, the young uh, future Justice Kennedy uh, learning about textualism. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wish he'd learned a little more. Uh, there were some sort of <laughs> rapid-fire questions. Uh, Manning asked what, what their favorite classes were. Uh, Justice Breyer, unsurprisingly, said legal procedure. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts said his was contracts. Uh, Dean Manning asked if they hadn't become lawyers, what might they have done? Um, Neil Gorsuch said that he would have been a fly-fishing guide or perhaps a ski instructor. I can definitely see that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Kagan and Sotomayor all said that they— uh, would have been history professors. Kennedy said he would have been a professor of either English English literature or political thought. And Justice Breyer said he would have been a baseball player. 
Um, they wrapped up with uh, with a couple of questions about um, justices who are no longer on the court. And, and Dean Manning asked, you know, who is the justice you most admire? Justice Kennedy and the Chief Justice both said John Marshall. You know, he was uh, the most significant political figure in our history who was not a president. I think um, Chief Justice Roberts said that. And uh, Justice Gorsuch said that uh, – Joseph Story is up there for one of the justices that he admires the most because he's a true scholar of the Constitution. And another question was, who would they most like to have dinner with of uh, past Supreme Court justices? Uh, Justice Breyer said he'd love to to chat with uh, over dinner with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a very cultured individual. Kagan said she'd love to have dinner with her former boss, Thurgood Marshall, who she says is the greatest storyteller. And the chief justice said that he would love to have dinner with uh, with William Howard Taft, who um, was known for his rather rotund stature. So Robert said, you know, you'd get a lot of food and it would be good. <laughs> so that was their recent trip uh, up to Harvard Law School. So this week, uh, Dahlia Lithwick and Steve Vladek had a piece in the New York Times called The Dangerous Myth of the Judicial Resistance, criticizing conservative commentators, including um, friends of the podcast, Josh Blackman and Ilya Shapiro, for pointing out some of the judges, um, for example, in the travel ban cases, aren't merely wrong, but they're ruling in, a, in that way because they despise the president and are, in effect, joining the so-called resistance. Uh, They say that this is a dangerous trend because it threatens judicial independence and undermines the public's confidence in that judicial independence. I would point out that uh, it's it's interesting that when there's a Republican in office, suddenly the left is is very deeply interested and concerned with judicial independence. Not something we heard about during the eight years of the Obama administration. Very true. Um, but I have to say that it's not the case, as Lithwick and Vladek claim, that conservatives are claiming that every judge who rules against the president is joining the resistance. That's just not the case. Instead, people like Josh and Ilya and David Rifkin and others have pointed out specific instances um, where judges are uh, showing their hand because they're not either discussing the text of rele- relevant statutes They've um, in the travel ban cases, they relied on the president's campaign statements rather than official determinations by the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. They've ignored controlling precedent. They found standing for individuals based um, based on experiencing, quote, feelings of disparagement and exclusion. So feelings aren't enough to get into court. Personally been harmed. (laughs) Generally not. Um, They've also they also ignored the fact that the challengers in the travel ban cases admitted that if it, it were another president who issued the ban, it, that would have been fine. Um, it was just Trump. So I think what really threatens judicial independence is how how these judges are handling um, these cases. And also note that um, before the Supreme Court vacated both the travel ban opinions, it had entered a partial stay of those lower court opinions. And it's likely that um, in part it would have thrown out those opinions anyway. So looking at cases since uh, 25, Josh, uh, 2005, Josh Blackman uh, pointed out that when the court had granted a, um, a stay and then granted cert, it reversed the lower court in 22 out of 24 um, of those cases. And commenters generally thought that that would hold true in these cases too. So I don't think it's this, you know, it's not just generally saying, um, you know, Judges who rule against Trump are joining the resistance. There are a lot of specific reasons that indicate that in these certain circumstances, that that seems to be the case. So next, we're going to talk with Kevin Daly. He's the legal affairs reporter for The Daily Caller, where he covers the Supreme Court, judicial nominations, and other matters related to the judiciary. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Kevin. So happy to be on the pod. 
So, <laughs> I love that you call it the pod. Of course. <laughs> first, uh, first question. Uh, many of the reporters on the Supreme Court beat have been following the court for many years, and it's a pretty small community. Tell us what it's like being the new kid on the block, and is there any hazing? So, there's a little bit of hazing. Um, there is a, a two-tiered credential system uh, at the Supreme Court. There is a, a small group of people I call the elect. Uh, there are about two dozen reporters who have what's called a hard pass. They get uh, a designated desk in the Supreme Court press room, and they have reserved seating. Uh, in the courtroom. And then there are uh, us lowly day pass holders who have to apply for a pass to attend arguments on a rolling basis, uh, who work off of kind of long conference desks um, in the uh, the press room, which are quite cramped. Uh, And we sit uh, behind the reserved reporter seating uh, on these like little wooden stools uh, for long stretches of time, which are incredibly uncomfortable. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's more or less hazing. But, uh, you know, I'll confess to some intimidation. Like when I started, uh, you know, last year covering the Supreme Court full time, uh, in the first place, you're in the company of, of really distinguished reporters. You know, you walk in and you say, you know, there's Nina Totenberg. She broke the Anita Hill story. She tanked Doug Ginsburg's nomination to the Supreme Court, you know, back in 87. Or there's Adam Liptak. He's been he's been covering the Supreme Court for over a decade, and he's probably the most widely read legal affairs writer in the country. It's, it's another friend of the podcast. Good to know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's certainly a little intimidating. And then, of course, I don't know if I should say this because because the event is supposed to be off the record, but I'll say it anyways to my friends here at uh, at Heritage. Um, on the, the first day of the term, usually the first day that, that orders come down uh, for the new term, uh, the chief justice will come down uh, to give brief remarks uh, in the press room to the journalists. And it's sort of odd because the first day at the Supreme Court for the new term for, sort of feels like the first day of school because everybody gets together. How was your summer? Exchanges pleasantries like that. And then the chief justice comes down and he's like the principal says, like, <laughs> welcome back, children. So excited for the new term. And it's, it's very intimidating on, on, on your first day. Uh, at the Supreme Court to to be standing in immediate proximity to the to the Chief Justice, so it was uh, it was all very overwhelming. <laughs> so um, we just talked earlier about the piece by Lithwick and Vladek warning Trump supporters to st- uh, stop claiming judges are part of the resistance movement. What's your take on this? Uh, so in the first place, I, I think that's rather an interesting line um, for Lithwick to take in particular. <laughs> Uh, she, uh, in a February piece just this year, uh, posted hours after uh, Neil Gorsuch's nomination was announced, uh, categorized him as uh, per se politically illegitimate uh, as a nominee and as a justice. Uh, and there was another piece that she wrote, I believe it was uh, May of, of 2013, uh, while several Obamacare challenges were being adjudicated before fairly conservative panels uh, at the circuit stage. Uh, she suggested that we should revisit the entire idea uh, of judicial review. So I would be interested to know what has animated her change of opinion uh, on this subject. Um, I'm I'm not sure that I would go um, as far as, as Ilya and Josh uh, and some others have in, in styling judges uh, as members of the resistance. Uh, I'm a journalist. I uh, think as a matter of course, we shouldn't make imputations as to motive without very good evidence. Um, and... Uh, you know, I do not think that we should assume malice uh, where there is uh, an equally plausible explanation. But I think that they do raise very interesting questions that that um, this piece doesn't really answer. You know, why have so many federal courts abandoned the typically deferential posture uh, that they would give to a case involving the confluence uh, of two areas in which the president has enormous power, immigration uh, and national security? Uh, you know, why did the Fourth Circuit, in its first opinion uh, on the travel ban, 
reach the constitutional argument that those challenging the ban brought and make a judgment as to that constitutional argument when their colleagues on the Ninth Circuit uh, show that the statutory arguments uh, are sufficient, at least in their view, to defeat the travel ban. Why did Judge Wynn, as I recall, on the Fourth Circuit raise the specter uh, of Korematsu during oral arguments? Um, there was a very smart piece at Lawfare some months ago that noted a lot of these opinions use the rhetoric of sight and blindness and muteness. Um, you know, these these judges say, you know, we can't be deaf or or mute to um, you know what's happening in the in the broader political culture. And their point was, it sort of seems like that the courts are using this rhetoric, um, you know, to call the presumption of legitimacy um, uh, that that is typically given to the executive branch or the presumption of regularity uh, into question. Those are all perfectly fair questions. So turning to the Supreme Court, are there any cases that are under the radar uh, that you think could end up being blockbusters this term? I think Wesby is a, is a huge case. This was argued uh, last setting. This is uh, uh, D.C. versus Wesby. Um, and I, I don't think that it's gotten nearly enough attention. Just briefly, uh, the facts of the case, uh, a couple of D.C. police officers responded to a, a call from uh, uh People in a neighborhood who were complaining about a, a loud party that was being thrown at a vacant house, uh, they ended up arresting uh, about two dozen attendees. The attendees said that they had you know, received an invitation from the person who they believed was the uh, least, uh, lessee of the house that turned out— Peaches. Peaches. Peaches, yes, yes. They received an invitation from Peaches, who was the, the lessee of the house. It turned out that uh, you know, she actually was not a lessee, that she was trespassing, and so uh, you know, all two dozen people were, were arrested for trespassing. And at the oral argument— um, you know, Justice Kagan asked, you know, look, when we talk about probable cause for arrest, we usually, um, you know, think from the point of view of the police officer. But it seems like these party goers didn't quite get a fair shake, which seems to me to be quite true. Um, and, and so Justice Kagan said, so, you know, because of that, why shouldn't we, you know, think about this case from the point of view of the rational party goer instead of the rational police officer? And if in, in probable cause cases, you know, we shift from the point of view of, of the police officer to, uh, you know, to a suspect, that, that's, you know, a, a revolution in that area. Uh, and that will have huge effects for law enforcement at every level, especially, you know, first responders and, and crime scene investigators. Do you have any predictions um, for what issues the justices might take up later in the term? For example, there's petitions for um, a challenge to our deference, Second Amendment case, Title VII sexual orientation discrimination. Yeah, it seems like they're not going to be able to sidestep the Title VII issue. Um, it's it generated a lot of interest. Uh, and there's also, a, you know, a circuit split. Um, you know, the government is no doubt going to, to weigh in on this at some stage. So it, it seems like the sort of case um, they're absolutely going to take. Um, administrative law cases like our or Chevron, I don't know. It always seems like we're one term away from overturning <laughs> our and Chevron. So I have no idea. I, I'm interested to see the cases that everybody, it seems to me, are watching right now are these cases uh, that arise from the Ninth Circuit, the challenges to uh, California's law, which requires pro-life crisis pregnancy centers to post information about state-funded abortions. Uh, in their clinics, those cases have been relisted, I think, four or five times at this point. Uh, so I'm, I'm particularly interested to see what's going to happen there. So do you think we'll see another vacancy on the court in the near future or maybe even three, according to President Trump? Yeah, I'm not so bullish on this. Um, you know, I don't think that, that any of the four Democratic appointees uh, are going to leave, uh, you know, of their own will. And, um, you know, as I've said before, I don't see why Justice Kennedy, um, you know, would resign now. I think uh, in a political environment that is as uh, unstable as ours, he hears the the clarion call of history that, you know, his, uh, uh, you know, uh, acute moral thinking can guide the country through through this time of crisis. It seems to me that that his power as the, as the swing vote on the Supreme Court is, is at its maximum right now. And I, I don't know why he would leave. 
Um, you vowed to uncover the secret of Justice Gorsuch's steak rub. Have you made any progress? I have. Um, I, I'm still on the case, but I published a, a piece last week. Um, we, we learned during the, the Gill versus Whitford oral arguments that Justice Gorsuch uses turmeric uh, in his <laughs> steak rubs. Uh, I talked to a number of culinary experts, uh, and they said that this was probably like the worst possible spice that you could pick. Uh, for a steak rub, the reason being that um, you know turmeric at, at the uh, molecular level uh, tends to eat away at lipids or fats in a meat. So if you're using turmeric in a steak rub, you're essentially stripping it, uh, you're stripping the meat of, of all of its fats, which is obviously not what you want to do um, when you're making a steak. Now I'm sure Justice Gorsuch has a very good answer to this, uh, and and I will be relentless in pursuing that answer. And I think there could be like a coffee table book for me in this, like inside Neil Gorsuch's spice cabinet or something. So I'm on it. This is going to be part of my brand, I think, in the long term. We look forward to uh, the coffee table book. So final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? So I'll copy the Chief Justice and say I'd like to uh, talk with, with Chief Justice Taft. I think he is singularly the most underrated person uh, most underrated statesman in American history. As far as the Supreme Court is concerned, you know, uh, Taft really like made the modern Supreme Court. Uh, it was him as, as chief justice who successfully lobbied Congress to give the Supreme Court a lot more discretion in setting its docket. The Supreme Court used to have a much larger uh, mandatory jurisdiction than it does today. Uh, and it was him who, who gave the justices a lot more discretion in, in picking uh, what cases they want to hear. Uh, it was his understanding as chief justice that uh, he should uh, you know, be the chief administrator of the federal courts and that he should have some kind of administrative staff to help with uh, that endeavor. And so he, with the help of Congress, created the Judicial Conference of the United States, which today sets policy for all federal courts and which is still led by the chief justice. Uh, and he secured a congressional appropriation to build the the Marble Palace where they, they do their work today. Um, and as to what we would talk about, uh, he, as I understand it, walked to work every day with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, and I should very much like to know what they talked about as they as they strolled about Washington. <laughs> so we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia Halloween edition, where we're going to try to stump our guest, Kevin Daly. So first question, which justice was nominated to the Supreme Court on Halloween? Is it a, is it a sitting justice, a current sitting justice? It is. Was it Justice Kennedy? It was not. It was Samuel Alito. No kidding. Um, President George W. Bush nominated him in 2005 on Halloween. Is that Justice Alito or Justice Solito? <laughs> well, according to our records, Justice Olito, Alito. But we don't know when know. Justice Solito was uh, was nominated. Seems like a Halloween nomination. <laughs> Sounds like it. Second question: What creature is said to terrorize the Supreme Court's old chamber in the Capitol building? Wait, is this like an urban myth? <laughs> Any guesses? No, tell me, please. It's a demon cat. So according to a blog uh, by the the architect of the Capitol, not the actual architect of the Capitol, but, you know, some of his staff, um, there is a demon cat that has been spotted near the old Supreme Court chambers in the Capitol building. It is believed to be the ghost of one of the cats that used to roam the halls of the Capitol to no kill vermin. No kidding. Yeah. And That's they amazing. They said he's, he's left like paw prints, Yes. Right? Yeah. Allegedly, there are paw prints outside of the, the old chambers. <laughs> I can't imagine who would like want to spend eternity like prowling around there, but okay. <laughs> right, next question. During which Chief Justice's first Halloween on the job... Did a light bulb explode during oral argument? Is that Chief Justice Roberts? It was. So in 2005, a light bulb exploded um, during Central Virginia Community College against cats. It was a sovereign immunity case. And Justice Scalia apparently responded with, Happy Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) 
the chief has had some good quips when that kind of thing has happened. That happened, I think, just last year. There, there was a sudden outage in the courtroom, and he said something to the effect of, uh, I knew we should have paid that electric bill or something like that. <laughs> it's like it's kind of hokey, but everyone laughs. He's very witty. Yeah. Uh, fourth question. What Supreme Court test did Justice Scalia compare to a ghoul from a horror movie? The lemon test. That is correct. Resurrected whenever it's convenient. Yes, yes. This The lemon test, of course, which the court has used to determine establishment clause violations. This comes from the 1993 Lamb's Chapel case. Scalia wrote a concurrence that says, and I'll read just a little, a little bit of it, like a ghoul in a late night horror movie that repeatedly sits up in its grave and shuffles abroad after being repeatedly killed and buried, lemon stocks our establishment clause jurisprudence once again, frightening the little children and school attorneys of Center Morich's Union Free School District. Fabulous. <laughs> So last question. It's a true or false one. The New York Supreme Court once held that a house could be haunted as a matter of law. That's got to be true. You wouldn't ask me if it wasn't true. (laughs) It's true. It is true. In Stramboski v. Ackley, a man tried to get out of his contract by a house after he learned it had a reputation for being haunted. The court held that the owner of the house had a duty to disclose this fact because she had previously gone around touting the house as being haunted and the house was featured um, in a Reader's Digest article. Wow. I, I think the law in New York has changed since then, though. So yeah. I'm not sure this is still good law. Well, I think you did a great job on Supreme Trivia. Well, and thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, Kevin. It was a pleasure. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.